Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode features one of the three guests on my hour-long NPR show, heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the family-owned foreman pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Good enough for you to eat, but your cats won't appreciate that. I am so delighted that Dr. Lisa Greenhill is going to be here to talk with me and with you. She is a woman who, the minute I sat down and talked to her at the VMX Veterinary Conference, I thought, this woman has seen a lot. She's been around a long time, and she has opinions and information based on years of experience and still very passionate. She's the Senior Director for Institutional Research and the Chief Diversity Officer, which is what started our conversation, at the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges, which was an association I didn't even know existed. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for your many years of devotion to the topic of diversity in the veterinary field. The feeling I got when I sat down and said, hi, would you be willing to talk on the radio with me about diversity in the veterinary <laughs> world? You were like, yeah, totally, very much so, when. I got this great sense that you maybe had even marched with Martin Luther King. I obviously age inappropriate, but you had such this view of racism and America and attitudes. And I thought you have a lot to teach all of us and to show us about where we weren't and where we are and where I'm guessing you would hope we go. So oh. from my understanding in a lot of previous interviews that I've been doing, there's very oh. little diversity in the veterinary field. It's awfully white. And I think probably you would even like the word awfully, like awfully white. <laughs> so talk a little bit about what your role has been. I mean, 1996, you joined the AAVMC. You've, you've been at this a long time. And I imagine there's a certain amount of frustration on your part that I'm talking to you in 2023, and it's still a very, very white field. <laughs> so what are we going to do about that? How are we going to make this a better place for everybody, the vets, the the young people, the, the recipients of veterinary care. Mm, so where do I start? Well, thank yeah. you um, for having me on. I'm really, uh, really glad to have an opportunity to chat with you. Um, so yeah, I've been around for a pretty long time, off and on since the mid-90s. And um, in my current position, I've been with AAVMC since uh, 2004, mm -hmm. so almost 20 years. And when I joined this last time, um, it was specifically for the purpose of working on diversity. And then over time, my, my 
portfolio expanded. Um, but at that time, we were just under about 10% um, uh, non-white students enrolled in veterinary medicine in the United States. And that had been after decades, decades mm-hmm. of work. Exactly. Um, dedicated work by, you know, faculty and deans and um, folks who are really, really passionate about the profession. Um, but at that time, you know, there had been an article in the Journal of Blacks and Higher Education that said, you know, I think the title was something like veterinary medicine, the most segregated of all the health professions. Wow. And um, yeah, it, it didn't land very well. With <laughs> <laughs> People happen. don't like that word. No, no. And so, it, you know, long story short, it resulted in my coming back to the association to head up diversity programming and, and hopefully a more concerted and strategic way. And um, over these 20 years, you know, we've certainly been working at it. And now, at least as of this academic year, the 22-23 academic year, we are, I'm really proud to say, finally at about 25% in student matriculants. That's now, impressive. That yeah, I'm really excited about it. However, <laughs> you know, um, when that kind of when those folks graduate and kind of get out into the masses, if you will, that tends to result in about, you know, a 10 to 15, not even 15, a 10 to maybe 12% um, representation in the profession writ large. And so we still have a lot of work um, to do, but we are making progress. We're making progress. And and I think that the, the things that folks have sometimes a hard time thinking about when we're talking about kind of the long view of, of diversity is that sometimes we really just have to keep slugging along, Mm -hmm. slugging along, just kind Mm -hmm. of doing the work and kind of then stopping periodically to look behind us to see what we've really accomplished. And, And I think that certainly the work of the association and certainly many other um, dedicated efforts throughout the profession have certainly had a, a, a huge impact. But I definitely am not going to shy away from the fact that I think the colleges have done the heavy lift. They have done it. In other words, they really are working on this. It is important to them? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, I think the reality is that uh, certainly it is maybe more important to some leaders than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but to some degree, it is important to every one at every institution and kind of thinking about what does it mean for the future of the profession, given that just, you know, national demographics are rapidly changing. And while the profession certainly meets the needs of society in some ways, we recognize from other disciplines, particularly like medicine and certainly some of the other health professions disciplines, that all of those needs don't necessarily get met. Um, that bias and unconscious bias and medical racism do exist and that they can manifest in veterinary medicine. And so um, as we think about the future of the profession, the profession really needs to not only prepare um, its dominantly white, now mostly female students um, to work in a really diverse environment, but it has to prepare has to prepare all students who are matriculating for it to work in that type of environment. And, and some of that certainly also 
requires some demographic uh, diversity as well. So if demographically, what is the percentage of blacks in America, more or less? So it's more or less about 13%, I believe, something like that. And yeah. So if it's 13%, I'm, I'm not really playing devil's advocate. I'm trying to understand numbers. And this capital D diversity has become such an important word across the American landscape, whether it's in what students get good lower education in order to get higher education, nothing to do with the veterinary field, but just education mm -hmm. in general, or wherever else the capital D diversity word is now rising up, although you and many people like you have been working on this issue for decades. Sure. Um, if if blacks, and I thought that that number was about right, or 12%, what percentage are Hispanics? And how much does higher education, because obviously being a doctor is higher, higher education, how much is education celebrated or is there even an opportunity to celebrate it in those demographics, whereas you think of Asians who, it may be true or false, but there's this perception that Asian families of any amount of wealth or lack of it, that education is so important that, I mean, you know, you just have to get good grades and you just have to excel. Is, is there some, it, does some of this translate into demographic groups in America not having a history of feeling or believing that they belong at the table of education? Because to be a vet, you have to have so much education. Does it start yeah. even younger is my question. Does it start way before you're talking about a veterinary medical college? Does it happen in fifth grade, sixth grade? I mean, or is that, a, is that not an intelligent question? I honestly don't know, yeah. but it's what comes to mind. Yeah, so I would say that um, there isn't, you know, this kind of inclination against or shying away from um, education by demographic groups. It's really an issue of equitable access yes. um, and preparation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so we... I mean, the, the, the evidence is <laughs> remarkably clear that we have huge inequities along the lines of education and health, um, access to health care and certainly many other things in this country that fall along, you know, certainly race and class demographics mm -hmm. um, here in the U.S. And so I would say <clears throat> specifically in veterinary medicine, um, many non-white populations in the U.S., including um, Asian Americans, are woefully underrepresented Correct. in the profession, right? Um, and a lot of that has to do with a lack of access to, to you know, quality, you know, K-12 education, but also undergraduate and graduate education. And so it's not, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, yeah, it really is about a lack of access and inequitable uh, um, funding streams. All of those kinds of things really are a challenge for professions like veterinary medicine to to recruit. Um, exactly. You know, it's not a lack of interest. It's certainly not about lack of in interest. 
um, most kids kind of typically will go through a phase of, of wanting, you know, to be a veterinarian. I know, it's as so a, as funny. Kids, everybody, right? everybody. Is <laughs> yeah. so, it's so wonderfully weird. Everyone, yeah. when they meet a veterinarian, goes, oh, I wanted to be a veterinarian too, which, as I pointed out in an interview recently with someone, is so offensive. You're basically saying to the person who excelled in college, excelled in veterinary medical school, excelled in a residency or an internship, is excelling in a clinic, yeah, I wanted to do that too, but I grew out of it. Hello. You know, that's not really the point how much you wanted to do it and thought it would just be fun. But yeah, yeah it's it's definitely everybody has that feeling. And I mean, one demographic we don't talk about that much is the Hispanic one. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't I'm not entirely sure. And you're so up to date on all the correct terminology. I'm not sure why you have to say Latin X instead of Hispanic. I thought Hispanic was any Spanish speaking person. Uh, no, Hispanic is actually, um, it, it, it doesn't just refer to language, but it can also refer to culture and, and location. Certainly language is a great connector. I think that, that the emergence of Latin American, Latinx, Latin, um, these, these, uh, these new terms right. are really trying to get at um, a level of, in some cases, more specificity that these are individuals from Central and Latin America, um, South and Latin okay. America. Um, and the X part is really to um, move away from the gender binary, which oh, can be really challenging for romance languages Thank because you. romance languages are very, very gendered. Right? Very. And so, every table, every chair, yeah. and certainly every yeah. human. Right. They tend to be very gendered. And while they do typically have a gender neutral um, uh, uh, option, it's not the the languages are still so gendered that those options are typically not used in the way that the X is kind of being used um, in a more general way. But with respect to veterinary medicine, I think that um, certainly that student population is representing about 6% now. Um, and um, they are increasingly um, a larger part of our pool. When I say larger, I still, it's still, rel- still bemoan relative, it. Yeah. Right. It's still relative that it's a small, um, you know, uh, applicant and student population, but it is growing and it's one of the fastest growing um, groups uh, in veterinary medicine. And so, um, and I do think that that has to do, again, with um, more people, more access. Yep. Um, you know, some of these students um, are, tend to be not just first generation, but they might be first generation college attendees. Correct. But they're maybe, you know, second generation um, or, or more, um, you know, in the United States. And so and many are born here. Right. And so um, and so there's just more people and um, really a lot of sacrifices, I think, made by families That's to right. help students, um, you know, continue to propel forward. Well, the, the one thing I want to say with the time we have left is that, and, and you will clarify this, I have often brought up in conversations historically, that the veterinary profession, maybe until recently, or maybe they'll stop doing it if they were doing it, has wanted to keep the pool of veterinarians small so that anybody who graduated was pretty much guaranteed they could work anywhere, anytime as a vet. And now we need so many more veterinarians than we have, much more pet ownership, maybe less farm animals, but a whole lot more owned pet animals. And there aren't enough veterinarians to go around. 
So if the, the number of veterinary medical colleges has either remained the same or the number of students that's allowed has remained the same, are, is there a sense of expanding? Are you going to have more veterinary colleges so we can have more places for more students? We don't want to discourage anybody who is white from being a veterinarian. No, it seems to me there's not. so much room for more veterinarians. We Are we going to have more schools or or expand the size of the ones that exist? Is that is that on the agenda of the yeah, Veterinary so, Medical College Association? So root, yeah, so routinely, I would say that um, each year, um, on average, the colleges increase enrollment by about 2%. Okay. Now, we are in a period of growth right now where over the last decade, we've had a number of schools um, open. Um, and so there are, let's see, three, four schools that just opened, um, I would say probably, well, no, three schools that just opened probably in the last five years or so. Um, and uh, there are, let's see, no, it's four schools, four schools. That's and then, good. Um, and then a couple other schools are kind of in the wings, maybe two to three other schools, maybe kind of in the wings, kind of contemplating or in the very early nascent stages of developing um, a school or college of veterinary medicine. Right now, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not we have a um, a workforce shortage. We certainly know that there are lots of workforce stressors. I'm not an economist, right. so I'm not going to go there with right. it, whether or not we need them or not. Right. But what I can say is that the number of pets continue to, in, um, to increase, but also veterinarians are needed in a variety of different That's right. working environments, right? So yep. So they're they're needed at in USDA. They're needed in research um, yep. areas. They're needed as toxicologists. That's they're right. needed in so many different environments that um, you know. Currently, I think in the U.S. we're graduating close to about four thousand. Um, Eh, 3,500 to 4,000 students per year. And, you know, a, a good chunk of those go on to internships um, and or residency. And then the rest go into a variety of areas of practice, mostly um, clinical practice, kind of working for, you know, an independent or corporate practice. Exactly. Um, but, but certainly, you know, we are seeing an good. increase in that is that is yeah. that is a very positive note to end on. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but it's it's. I I really do hope you'll come back and we can discuss more at, at length sure. what what the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges is there for and what it's doing. It sounds that it's dynamic, and certainly with you at the helm, there's going to be a lot of good happening, and maybe we're going to get um, a more resilient workplace or society oh. to to uh, welcome more people. Thank you yeah. so much, Dr. Lisa Greenhill. It's so been much. a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will support all of these companies because they stand behind my mission, which is to bring you delightfully informative Pet Talk Radio. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. They make many non-chemical products for the inside and outside of your pets, as well as innovative foods like no-hide chews and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which sometimes is all that my Weimaraner Maisie will eat. 
I'm very grateful also to Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two extraordinary women, Allison and Hannah, who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thanks again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one guest version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.